Isn't my wife cute? She even looks cute on a mission trip. I don't know what, what that's kind of fun. Um, you know, I, uh, I really debated whether to share some of the stuff I was going to share at the beginning here, but um, I, think, I think it's really relevant. We, um, we are all caught up in the hysteria of the coronavirus. My wife went to Target not to hoard, um, but she went there to pick up a few items, and she, she took some pictures and sent them to me. She said, look, there's no toilet paper. And toilet paper has become the symbol of our survival. <laughs> I mean, seriously. One day, some of you who've got like 900 rolls of toilet paper hoarded up are going to wake up and go, what was I thinking? But, uh, but I, I think it really speaks to something on the spiritual level um, that I, I really believe that we need to address and need to understand uh, ab- about life and about our faith. Um, the Bible says that God has not given us a spirit of fear. Okay? But he has given us something that is the Holy Spirit of love, power, and a sound mind. So when you fall prey to the spirit of fear, you can't fall under the control of the Holy Spirit. It's one or the other. You're either going to be living in fear or you're going to be living in confidence with God. And I think so many times we, we, we get, we're such consumers of everything. You know, we, we consume uh, news feeds. We consume things in life that we forget about what we're supposed to be doing. We're, we're actually supposed to be processors of information and dispensers of wisdom. That's really what we're supposed to do as believers. And I, and I think that, um, you know, I, I, I jumped on the, the uh, CDC site just to, you know, th- there's so much misinformation. I thought, you know what, I'm at least going to go to a source that has responsibility to try to get the facts right, even if they don't tell you everything, versus the news, versus the news that tells you stuff that may not be fact, but it's hysteria and hype. And, and, and these are the real stats. We have about 330 million people in the United States today. Uh, flu season starts in September. So this last September it started, and uh, 32 million people in America got the flu in the, from September till today, and 18,000 of those people died. Now, that's a lot of people, right? That's a lot of people, a lot of deaths. And... And yet we're looking at today with the coronavirus about 400 cases um, here in the United States and 19 deaths. And that's tragic. That is tragic. I don't diminish that at all. But I'm saying, what I'm saying is that, that we have to be, we have to use a sound mind and not hysteria, hype, and fear to guide our life in general. Um, See, the problem is that fear travels faster than a disease. So fear travels at the speed of light. Do you ever think where fear comes from? If it doesn't come from God, then it comes from the enemy. And what does he do? He's there to kill you, lie to you, and destroy you. See, if we, if we allow our life, our theology, to be guided by that which disappoints us, or makes us uncomfortable, then we've missed out on what God wants to do in us and through us. Professor of uh, microbiology and and infectious disease at UCLA um, said that um, 
We fear, we fear the, the unknown, the enemies, the unknown enemy versus the ones we know. We don't really think much about fearing flu. We don't think about 18,000 people died from flu since September. That doesn't really cross our mind because everybody gets the flu. We don't quarantine anybody for flu because it doesn't really do any good to quarantine people for flu. And yet it is at this point um, as dangerous or more dangerous than the coronavirus. What I, want, what I want you to do is I want, you to, I want you to step back a minute and I want you to think about what should my perspective be as a child of the living God. At the same time, we operate, remember, with love, power, and a sound mind. So I also operate with a sound mind. What does that mean? That means I make good health decisions in my life. That means I take precautions just like I would around people with the flu or anything else. And, and as you do that, you go, I'm, gonna, I'm not, I'm not going to let a, a bad mind operate in my world any more than I'm going to operate without love or without the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen? So I just, and then God put this scripture on me, on my heart. Uh, the, the scripture is Psalm 91, and this was not part of the sermon. This is just extra for you. But, um, but Psalm 92 is my sermon for today, so it's kind of neat how this works. But here's what it says. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High. Did you know that God has a secret place in his place? See, Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, there you will be also. But he also said, in my place, I have a secret place. In your place, you should have a secret place. You should have a place of communion. You should have a place of engagement, a place of power, unlike any place else on earth. It is the secret place of the Most High. And it says here, he who dwells, you spend time in the secret place, he who dwells in the secret place, in the, in the, in the, in the place of the Most High, shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. So my abiding, my living, my breathing, my operation is, is all into the presence of God. And then he said, I will say unto the Lord, he is my refuge and he is my fortress. Who am I going to depend on? I'm going to depend on the Lord. He's my refuge. He's my fortress. My God in him will I trust. Surely, now listen to this, he shall deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the uh, perilous pestilence. So God says, you know what? When you dwell in that place, I'm going to take care of you. What if he doesn't? That's always a question that comes in our mind. What if he doesn't? I don't build my theology around my disappointments about the circumstances or about the things I can't explain. There's always a divine tension that operates in this world between over here, everything is ideal, and over here, everything is real. And I'm always pulled in that tension of life. I believe that God heals, and yet not everybody gets healed. I still believe he's a healer God. I still believe that God wants us well. God wants us to prosper. All of those things. And when I can't explain something, I don't build a theology or point my finger at God and what he didn't do. And you're going to see how relevant this is in this message because it's just, it's timely. And then it says, 
He shall cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you shall take refuge. Uh, his truth shall be your shield and your buckler. Now listen to this. You shall not be afraid of the terror by night. Do you know the Bible talks about night terrors? Psalm 91 right there. It's not new. But it also recognizes the origin of it. God has not given you a spirit of fear, but of love, power, and of a sound mind. And then it says this. You shall not be afraid by the terror by night or the arrows that fly in the day. Now listen to this. Nor the pestilence that walks in darkness. Now that's an interesting phrase. Pestilence that walks. You see, God never isolates or separates out things like pestilence or darkness or evil without attaching it to a person. Does that make sense? See, sin is not something that just kind of floats around and connects with you. It, it connects with you because you are a sinner, redeemed by God, made a child of the living God. But it says here, darkness walks. And when does it walk? It walks at night. That is in the spiritual darkness. You see, darkness always brings to mind a little bit of the unknown, right? When you walk in the unknown, there's a little bit of fear. I like the story is told of the, of the uh, family that lived out on, uh, uh, in a farm in uh, North Iowa, and the little boy was afraid of the dark. And the dad was trying to get him to overcome it, and he said, go out to the barn and get me a hammer, and it was dark out. He says, it's dark, I'm afraid. And he says, take this lantern. And he, the little boy held the lantern up, and he couldn't see the barn because the light didn't go far enough. And he said, I, I can't see the barn. He said, go to the edge of the light, and more light will be given. You see, you only have to go to the edge of the light that you can see in front of you. What has God said? That's your light. I have to walk by faith. But as he progressed with that lantern, the light went before him. Thou, Lord, art a light unto my feet. Psalmist said, 119, right? God will lead you, guide you in a powerful way, but you have to be willing to fall under the, under the authority of God and stay in his presence. And then it says this, nor the destruction that lays waste at noontime. Hey, you may find difficulty at night. You may find difficulty at the daytime. God says, I got you. I got you covered, amen? All right, so that's the sermonette. That's the preamble. All right, now let's get into the sermon. All right. So I came across this quote from uh, George Bernard Shaw, and I just thought it was so good because it addresses this idea of circumstances and how they play a part in, divide, in, in designing our future for us. You'll, you'll talk to people all the time, how you doing? And they'll say something like this, pretty good under the... Under the circumstances, which is a great question. Why are you under them? Right? Isn't that a good question? Why are you under them? Get on top of them. And then, it, so I saw this quote, and it says, people are always blaming, blaming their circumstances for what they are. I don't believe in circumstances. The people who get on in this world are people who get up and look for the circumstances they want, and if they can't find them, they make them. So we're out of toilet paper. I'm sure some of you have already gone into our restroom, stolen rolls, and hand sanitizer. Tammy says there's no hand sanitizer. 
Okay, that's a circumstance. Now there's price gouging. Uh, I just was curious. I wasn't going to buy any, but I was curious. I went on to Amazon. How much is a little bottle? And they, they, somebody wanted $49 for a little bottle of hand sanitizer. How, would you, how many of you would agree that was too much? How many of you bought one? No, I'm just kidding. Sometimes I think, well, I bet you can make this stuff. So I, I go on the website. I find out you get some aloe vera, and you, and you get some rubbing alcohol, and you do two, two parts rubbing alcohol and one aloe vera. You shake it up, and you now have hand sanitizer. You say, but I can't find alcohol. Then you can use vodka. This is literally true. <laughs> Approved by the CD, CDC. You can use vodka in there. That's a little bit more expensive, and you might be tempted to take a shot in the, in the process. But I'm telling you, don't let your circumstances get the best of you. Amen? Peter Drucker, one of the great uh, business gurus, said this. He said, the best way to protect your future is to create it. Who are you letting create your future? Why are you letting them create your future? Sometimes it's the, the people we are closest to, they're designing our future for us. They're telling us what we can't do because they don't want to do that. Or because I tried that and failed, so maybe I won't. You have to think about this from a, from a really good, logical, reasonable, spiritual perspective. I want to give you this first thought. I, I like it because it challenges me to think about it, the way it's stated. You see what you already believe. When you stop to really dwell into that, let that sink into your heart, it's so true. You see what you already believe. And unless you change your belief system, you're not going to see other things. 85% of all the thoughts you have today are the thoughts you had yesterday. You're only doing about 15% new thinking on a daily basis. And that's probably because somebody came into your life, not because you intentionally tried to cross-pollinate your brain and get some new thoughts going there. So let me give you a scripture. Psalm 92, 12. The righteous shall flourish like a palm tree. He shall grow like a cedar in Lebanon. I love the metaphors there, the two trees. Because on one hand, we've got this image of a palm tree. On another one, we've got this image of a cedar tree. And it says, but you're going to flourish like a palm tree. Palm trees can grow in the most unusual places and thrive. They can withstand wind. And yet the cedar tree is so different. It's got this sweet uh, aroma that comes forth from it, and it grows tall and strong. And the both metaphors, God says, that's you. When you are righteous, say, that's my problem, Pastor. I'm not very righteous. Can I tell you this? I've got good news. How many of you want good news? Good news. The good news is that you are not righteous before God because you always do what is right. That's what religion promises. You're righteous because you've come by faith into a covenant with Jesus Christ and the blood of Christ cleanses you from all sin. You're declared righteous by God and therefore a son or a daughter of the living God. Now, the idea is to become in practice what you already are in position. You are righteous. God says, now walk in that. Walk in that. Well, what happens when I don't? Then you confess it and you keep moving forward. You don't get stuck in some world that doesn't exist in God's mind. And that is 
I feel so guilty, I'm just gonna avoid God. I feel so guilty, I'm just not gonna go to church. I feel so guilty, I'm not gonna read my Bible. No, read your Bible, go to church, lift your head up, you're a son of the, and daughter of the living God. This is what God has designed and prepared for you. I love it, it says that you will flourish. That means to bloom in the Hebrew, or it means to fly. Now, how many of you have been to Hobby Lobby, God's store, right? You know, I've been there a couple of times, and, and I, it's always like, it's a hard place for men to navigate. I, I'm just gonna be honest with you ladies, because I walk in there, and there's like no guys, right? And I walk in there, and I'm kind of walking around, and, and everybody, all the ladies, they know what they're doing. I mean, they just, they've got to navigate. They're going, I just want a Christmas tree. Where's the Christmas tree? Oh, it's down here. Okay. But I walk by artificial flowers, and I go, man, these look good. Have you ever walked up to an artificial flower, and you thought it was real? It was that good? And I go, this is really good. Then you smell it, and it smells like an old water bottle. I mean, it's not, it's not it doesn't have the aroma, right? But it looks good. In fact, if, if we took the right flower, the same kind of flower, and a live one, a cut one, and put it in a, in a vase with, with some artificial, sometimes we could get fooled unless we got up close or we smelled it or we felt it, right? Because you see, sometimes, sometimes the artificial gets passed off as the real, but there's no roots. And I got to thinking about this with flourishing. Because as a pastor, you watch this your whole life. There are a lot of Christians who are like artificial flowers. And they move from vase to vase to vase to vase because they can't ever find the place, the church. There's always something wrong. There's always something they can't agree with. And the problem is they look good, but they have no roots. They have no life. This says here, that the righteous shall flourish like a palm tree. He shall grow like a cedar. And it says that we need to bloom and we need to fly, but we have to do it in an environment. Everything works best in the environment it was designed for. Christians are designed for the environment of church. I love it when people say to me, well, you know, you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. Okay. Well, why wouldn't you if you're a Christian? I, I, don't, I don't understand this. It's like, you know, I have a garage and I have a car, but I'm not putting the car in the garage. Why? I don't know. It just doesn't belong in there. And some of you would agree because your garages are full of all kinds of stuff, right? That you, <laughs> the, beauty, the beauty of California. No, we just fill them up and the car can sit outside. It's okay. Third John, verse 2. I love this verse. It says, Beloved. And, he, and here's John's writing. He says, I wish... My desire, my desire for you is that above all things you may prosper, be in good health, even as your soul prospers. Now, if you, if you read that quick, you miss out on what's really going on because what he says is, I'm praying that you may prosper. This word in the Greek language is tied to your financial world. He says, I'm praying that financially you will have all your needs met and live in a margin. That's what it means. It doesn't mean like to be super rich. That you might prosper. And then it says to be in health. This has to do with the physical aspect. So God says your financial world's important, your physical world's important, and your soul, that is your spiritual world's important. That you might thrive in all three of those areas. What if you sat down and said, I want to thrive in those three areas. What would need to change in my life? 
You see, one of the things that God's already said, this is what I want for you, now will you take it? Will you accept it? Will you embrace it? Here's another big idea. You have to transform your personal belief system. Everybody in this room has a personal belief system. I'm not talking about, you know, just the the little narrow thing called my Christian beliefs. I'm talking about something even bigger. The way you look at life, what does your personal belief system look like, and how did it come to be the way it is? For example, why do you... um, Why do you look at life a certain way? Why do you operate in a certain way? And I'm gonna give you five elements here in just a moment, but I I wanna begin with a story. So when I, Tam and I first started dating, uh, her dad, wonderful man, um, went on to be with the Lord, but uh, he was a great guy, just a great prayer warrior, a great uh, family man, a father and all of that, but he he was a cheapo. And he had to because he was married to his wife. And I remember I, this kind of came to, to, to the surface one time when uh, he said, hey, I'm going to go get some gas. you want to go with me? And I, sure. So he had this giant Ford station. Remember those? They like needed a hinge in the middle of them to go around corners. They were so long. And so we get in this car and we're driving and, and we just keep driving and, and we're driving by like 10 gas stations. I said, there's a gas station here. Oh no, I'm going to this one because it's, it's a lot cheaper. We drive 15 minutes, maybe 20 we passed gas station after gas station to save six cents. And I think that car got about four miles a gallon. But you see, in his mind, that worked. He also had shut the, garage, you know, you shut the refrigerator door. You only got a 10-second rule. If you can't find what you want in 10 seconds, you shut the door because the cold air will get out and it'll cost you a lot of money. Now, you see, where did that come from? That came from his upbringing from his father because his father went through the Depression and he carried forth this mindset of the depression that we would call a poverty spirit, and it just kept perpetuating itself down the road. I still catch my wife doing this because she's governed by that. And it's not, it's not like this super negative thing that you can't switch. Once you recognize your personal belief systems about life, you can make some shifts in your life, amen? You can make some changes. So let me give you the five elements here. One is your social environment. These are the elements that make up your personal belief system. So first one is your social environment. Who are your friends? They are shaping your belief system. That's why sometimes people need to change friends. It's not that there's something wrong with that person, but that that person is wrong in your life. And they're shaping the way you look at life more than you think. Because this is one of the five critical areas that shapes your personal belief system. Who are you connecting with? Who are you social interacting with? Who are you listening to in your life? The next thing is authority figures in your life. If you take, you are probably shaped by three individuals in your life that will stand out. If you think, who are the three people that shape my life? I'll bet you could think of them pretty quickly. And they shaped you, not necessarily because you respected them, they shaped you, but not necessarily all for the good, they just shaped you. Because you thought highly of them, and you valued them, and, and they brought some of their values and their belief systems into your life. But you have to go back and say, are all of those valid beliefs that they brought into my life? It doesn't mean you throw them out as authority figures, it doesn't mean that you diminish them, it's just not everybody has everything that you need. 
And what you want to do is kind of sort this thing out and say, where are those? Third one, self-image. And this, is, this could be the most important one. What is your self-image? If you look and say, uh, if I could mark my self-image on a scale of one to 10, you know, what would it be at? If, if this is one and let's say this is five and this is 10, where would I mark my self-image? And what is that? That's the way I see me. Not what I'm posing, okay? Not what I tell people I am. How do I really see me? When you really get honest with you, how you doing? How do you look to you? What do you think other people think of you? What's going on deep down? And this is gonna be such an important part of your life that, and I'm gonna show you this diagram here in a minute, why it's so important, but let me just digress with a story. So I heard about a little boy um, who had a baseball bat and a, and a ball, he went out in the backyard. And he was just gonna hit the ball, so he'd throw it up, and before he would throw the ball up, he'd say, I am the greatest hitter in the world. Good, right? Positive reinforcement. See it in your mind before you do it. He swings and he misses the ball. It falls to the ground. Undaunted, he picks it up, does it again. And before he swings, he says, I am the greatest batter in the world. And he misses again and it falls to the ground. Still undaunted. Picks the ball up, proclaims, I am the greatest batter in the world. He throws it up, swings and misses again. He looks down and then he realizes, I am the greatest pitcher in the world. It's all about perspective, amen? How are you going to see who you are and your self-image? And if you elevate it, you say, you know, I may not be great at that, but you know what? I'm pretty good at this. I'm not a batter, but I'm a pitcher. And you start to go through this. Well, Stephen Burles, who was professor at Harvard, um, wrote a book called The Success Syndrome. And what he said was, our self-worth has a baseline somewhere, the way we see ourselves." And we may not be able to put a number on it, but it's there. There is a number there for it. And then what happens is when we have success that reaches too high above our level of self-worth, what we do is we find ways to self-destruct. And so what we do, and this is not a conscious thing, this is a subconscious thing. It's based on your self-worth. It might be that what happens here is the very person that was gonna be the most successful in, in your life to help you go higher is a person that you, for some reason, get an argument with and break up with. Your friendship is gone. Or you find fault in the future. You, you look at the economy, you say it's not gonna work, and what's really happening is you're sabotaging your level of self-worth. And then, for this person, you're never happier than when you're here. The reason is because now everything is up. Well, I don't need to stay down here. Watch what I can do. And so don't underestimate me. And all of a sudden, the rise begins. It goes up here, hits it, self-destruction again. And the key here is not to limit your success, but to increase your level of self-worth so that you can keep going up. But you always have to maintain this balance between your level of self-worth and your level of success. How you know that you're hitting some of those top levels of success where you might implode, you'll say things like this, I don't deserve this. I don't know how I got here. I could never do this again. All of those things are just, those are things that people have fed into you over time that 
have damaged your level of self-worth and kept you from reaching to a new level of success in your life. And I, when I talk about success, I mean, I don't care what you do, whether you're a stay-at-home mom or a doctor or whatever you are, I'm talking about life working well for you, that you're growing as a human being, you're moving forward in your life. Okay, number four, repetitive information. Repetitive information. What you hear all the time shapes your self-image. It selfs your, your, your personal belief system. So what is it you hear all the time, all the time, all the time? What, is, what are that little inner voice tape that you play? Who, what do your friends say to you? What, is, what does the world say to you? What, what is your narrative of life, and how is it shaping you in the days ahead? Because it does shape you, whether you know it or not. And the fifth one is experience. And every one of us here have a unique experience in life. We were born at a certain time, a certain place. We had influences in our life, experiences in our life. All of those are shaping us today. We are shaped by those. But remember, they make up our personal belief system. If I'm going to change and move forward, I have to begin by actually questioning my personal belief system, which includes my faith in Christ. What I'm trying to do is I want you to see this is a bigger picture than just your faith in Christ. Because your faith in Christ is critical, most important, obviously. But you also have ways of looking at life. You ever looked at somebody and just thought, yeah, that, that guy's, I don't know where that guy came from. Anybody ever had that comment? I mean, just to yourself. Yeah, I don't know, that guy thinks he saw that. Come on, raise your hand. How many would be honest? I've done that, right? Have you ever stopped and said, why do I do that? Why do I do that? because of my personal belief system. How many of you found that you, you said that about somebody and then later you found out just the opposite true of them? Raise your hand. So your, your personal belief system isn't always accurate. That's what I'm trying to say. You wanna, you wanna keep a balance here where you go, you know, ask yourself, if you're gonna be critical of something, someone, you ought to be at least as critical on you and go, why, Phil? My God, why, Phil? Why do you act like that? Why do you do that? Why do you think like that? And what would happen if I could change just a little bit of that in my life? You see, and it's a combination of what God does by his word, his spirit, and then by the ability he's given us to assess our own life, operate with wisdom and understanding, and make significant changes in our life. Amen? Okay, let's move on. Psalm 92, verse 13. Those who are planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the courts of our God. See, people that aren't planted in church, I'll just be honest with you, if they're not planted in church, it's easy to feel like an artificial flower. It really is. It's just, it, it just it's easy to do. But you can't flourish apart from community. Can you go to heaven? Absolutely. Can you know Jesus? Absolutely. Can you get cool stuff out of the Bible? Absolutely. But according to the Bible, you can't flourish apart from that. And I think, I don't know about you, but I want to flourish, amen? I want to flourish in my life. But I like what it says here. It says, who are planted in the house of the Lord, they shall flourish in the courts of our God. Now, what, what are the courts of God is the presence of God. You go into the court, and all of a sudden, you're in the presence. So I'm in the house of God. When I'm in this house, I flourish in those courts. You get it? It's just so cool. 
Once you kind of start to see this in Scripture, you go, this is amazing. Look how God put all this neat stuff together for us. That word planted is a word that literally means transplanted. You were over here, but God transplanted you into the right place so that you could flourish. God says, you're not flourishing. I'm going to plant you here. I'm going to transplant you over here. I don't know about you. Have you ever seen, uh, oh, the second word is flourish. So flourish means to bloom or to fly. So when we were living in, in Ohio, they have, uh, we had some plants by the side of our garage there called rhododendrons. Anybody ever seen a rhododendron? So a rhododendron is kind of a goofy-looking plant. It looks like it came right out of Star Wars. It really does. But it blooms twice a year, the most magnificent blooms you've ever seen. And I remember I was walking by the, the rhododendrons one day, and I, I looked over at them, and I, and I, just, I just talked to them. You're, you're an ugly plant. I know some of you are going, aw. Now, you're just an ugly plant, but you have great blooms, but you're kind of an ugly plant. And then the Holy Spirit said to me, you're a rhododendron, Phil. Now, literally, it was just that quick. He goes, you are a rhododendron. I made that rhododendron, and you just knocked on my stuff. You are a rhododendron. Okay, God, I'm, I'm here. Tell me more. He says, well, here's what you do. You spend most of your life getting sunshine, water, and nutrients, preparing for a bloom that will come twice a year. He said, but Phil, blooming twice a year is okay. You see, most of life is a routine. Most of life is preparing for that opportunity to bloom and for you to be ready when the opportunity to bloom comes. When you're in the right environment, you can bloom. If you get, if you get a late snow in Ohio, the rhododendrons don't bloom right. Because it's still a little bit too far north for a rhododendron. It needs to be a little further south. And so some years you'd only get one bloom. Because you see, in your, when you're in the wrong environment, you can't fully flourish the way that God wants you to. And most people, they don't flourish because they're in the environment of their own personal belief systems. They're just operating there. And, and, and you don't even know you're doing it. I mean, I don't know that I'm doing it. Third thing, third big idea is it's all about attitude. Psalm 92, verses 14 and 15. They shall still bear fruit in old age. Who's they? They who are planted in the house of the Lord, who are flourishing in the courts of our God. They shall still bear fruit in old age. They shall be fresh and flourishing. I like that, fresh. And the deep south, fresh meant you had an attitude. But I like fresh here, fresh fruit right? I think I like that. Fresh and flourishing to declare. Why am I doing this? So I can declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him. You know what happens when our personal belief system gets a little bit off? We find fault with God, with church, and with Christians. It's something like this. You know, God, if, if you were really God, you would have fill in the blank. Those Christians, you better get used to them because my Bible says you're going to have to spend eternity with them, right? You said, those, really? You're not going to have separate quarters? I don't think so. I think you're going to be kind of tight. Flourish in the house of the Lord. Why do I do that? It says here, to declare the Lord is upright. Every time I say God is upright, Every time I said God is righteous, every time I say God is good, it challenges my personal belief system that says life is unfair. 
You've heard me say it once, probably a hundred times. When we, our children were growing up, we just, we just, when they shout unfair, we said, you're right. It's not fair in this household. You know, we, we don't, we treat you all different according to the way we feel that day. It's true, parents. I mean, why not just tell them the truth? You know, there's some, t- some days you have your kids who go, I don't like that one. You know, the other day, it's, no, I don't like that one now. I like this one's better, you know. But I, I, I have, the, the mystery of the universe has been solved. I found out that grandchildren are better people. Just better people. I don't know what it is. I mean, like Gracie Bell, I mean, I love you, Jen, but that Gracie Bell is something else, right? You want to flourish. You want to flourish. What does, it bear, what does it mean? It means you bear fruit. That word bear fruit in the Hebrew means to germinate. You know what germinate, how germination happens? Germination revolves around death. Jesus said, unless a, a seed fall to the ground and dies, it abides alone. But if it dies, it will bear forth much fruit. You know what has to happen for us to thrive in life? Is we have to die. There's some things we just have to say no to in our own life. We have to die to ourselves. And guess what? Full-time job, it's only going to end when you die. Okay? So you're not going to get to some point of spiritual perfection and you got it all together. You're never challenging. You're, nothing's challenging in your life. Your personal belief system's perfect, all those things. No, you're always going to do that because you're in process. But one day you will be perfected. It says in First John, it says, when, we, when he appears, we shall see him as he is, and we shall be like him. That's kind of cool, right? We're not like him completely now, but we will be like him completely one day. And then fresh. It says you will be fresh. That means rich. Rich in the Bible has to do, when you read this word, it has to do with having all your needs met and a margin to live in. It's not defined by how much. I just read where some billionaire lost $4.6 billion in the stock market. I feel so bad for him. He's only got $44 billion left. Why is it, why is it news highlights that guy? Let me tell you who, who are, who's rich. You're rich if you've got enough money to live a little bit on the margin. You've got God, you've got friends, you've got family, because you know what? On your deathbed, and I've been the deathbed of hundreds of people over my, over my ministry, there's only two things that matter. Those who you love and those who love you. That's all that matters. I've never had anybody tout their success on their deathbed. Man, I accomplished a lot. They don't care. Because when you, when you reduce everything down to what really matters, who do you love and who loves you? Powerful, isn't it? And then you become wealthy. Become rich, you become wealthy. I, uh, this last week, uh, my oldest son, um, Josh spoke last week, and he's the middle, but the oldest son was uh, in New Orleans on business, and he decided just to drive up to, uh, just outside of Baton Rouge, to this little town called Wilson, where I pastored my first church, and where he was born, basically. He was born in a hospital, but that's where he grew up the first couple of years of his life. And Josh was born in New Orleans, too, so they're both Cajuns. Um, and he decided just to drive up there and just to see it and took a chance. And uh, he sent, he was just, you know, get all caught up in all this nostalgia, right? And do you, everybody remember your first place? 
And then he went back and looked at it and go, I think it was nicer than that. So anyway, uh, I want to show you a picture. This is the first house. Look at that. Isn't that a beauty? And you notice that it's on blocks. That's because it's in Louisiana. It floods so much that that way the water can flow underneath it. It also means that the, 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 the beagle that howled across the street would always crawl under there and howl in the middle of the night. And, uh, but, you know, you, you kind of think about what's your, what's, your, what's your roots? Where do you go back to? Those shaped you guys. We put up our first Christmas tree in that house as a married couple. And it had so much, and South Louisiana can get pretty cold, and had so much wind that would come underneath the door that, you know those little, those little tinsel things that you hang on a Christmas tree? They were always at a right angle. I mean, they're just like, the wind would blow, and they're at a right angle, and, you know, it, it just, but you see, we could take little data points of all of our lives and go, what did I learn there? What did I learn there? I look back now, I mean, that house was so ratty, I wouldn't store hay in it. It was bad. It was really bad. It didn't look any better than that when I lived there. But I learned so much about me, about my personal belief systems, about family, about God, about all those things. And I think when you go back and you start chronicling your life, God just wants to do a fresh thing. Let me ask you this. How many today, and I'm going to ask you to raise your hand, and there will be other people raise your hand, so don't feel like you're on the spot. I'm going to raise mine. How many of you would say today that there's, there's at least one personal belief in my personal belief system that I'd like to change? I, I've, just raise your hand. Okay? All right, good. Okay. And I think that's the first step of just saying, hey, I identified something. If I could shift that a little bit. And remember, it takes 21 days to form a new habit. So you have to be committed to this thing for at least 21 days working on it, proactively working on it every day to bring about a shift. And guess what? You get done with that and you say, I think I've, it's never probably going to go away completely. You're always going to have to kind of nurture it a little bit. But if you know what those two or three are and you say, these are significant, these can change my life. They literally can. And if you're, if you're a parent of a young child, it can change your children's life because you're going to shape them for the future. Amen. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to, let's all stand together. And uh, we're going to sing uh, together. And as we sing, I want you to, just to kind of shout out some declarations in between your singing. God, I thank you for the victory. I thank you for my personal belief system getting, getting challenged today. I thank you, God, for the new person I'm going to be. Whatever, whatever the Spirit of God puts on your heart. Got it? All right, let's sing.